0: We've been going through a series called The Bible, A Unified Story Leading to Jesus. And uh, I'm going to start out by taking a risk. I'm going to risk, I'm going to agitate uh, us this morning. By agitate, I mean I want you to think. Agitate means you take uh, a stick in the water and you stir it up a little bit. Okay, you agitate the water. Okay, so uh, we're getting towards the end of our series and it's an interesting point of the story of the Old Testament because the people of Israel have lived in Israel for a long time now. And we've talked about this in previous weeks. We're not going to get into it all right now. But they've lost the land. They've broken uh, their side of the covenant they would made with God, and they got kicked out of the land. And today, they're getting exiled. Where many, if you've grown up around church, or even if you haven't, you've probably heard of the story of Daniel and the lion's den. It's important to know where Daniel and the lion's den happened. It didn't happen in Israel, it happened in Babylon. It happened in a totally different country, really, really far away. So I want us to start thinking about that, and that's what we're going to dive into today. So on the screen I have an American flag. How do you feel when you see this flag in church? Some feel good. Others don't feel good about seeing this flag in church. I grew up with this flag on the stage of church and there's certain ramifications of that that I want us to look at today as we look at the exile now before I go any further I want to say that I personally believe the United States is a great country and I'm very thankful to live here and I hope that you are too we have incredible freedoms here and I want to give a monumental thanks to our active military and our reserve military and our veterans for... Amen. We can give them a hand. We can give them a hand. Um, My brother is in the Army Reserves, and he was deployed in Afghanistan, and um, I I, I highly respect the sacrifice that our military makes and and, and continues to make to this day. We have have, uh, our Mosaic family that is deployed around the world right now. Uh, I also think it's important that we ask the question are we a Christian nation, theologically, to be able to ask that question theologically, and as Christians, delve into that. And know that you can do that. You can do both. You can honor your country and be thankful for your military and honor them and ask hard questions like, are we a Christian nation, and what are the implications of that question? Okay, so we're going to come back to some of that. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above. That should sound familiar to you. God bless America. Makes me want to sing. Here's a question. This is a really famous song in our country. Do our politicians actually mean that? When our politicians get up in the morning, do they... uh, Read the words of God bless America and say, God, would you bless our country? Would you stand beside us today as we make decisions on behalf of our country? Would your light be the light that lights the way? Do they do that at Congress when they open up the Congress floor? Do they all go to God and ask him to light the way? Do they do that in the Oval Office when they have uh, meetings? You know, they start their day off to lead our country. Do they ask God to be the one that lights the way. No, they, they absolutely don't. <laughs> they absolutely don't do that. Uh, but we keep singing that song. We keep singing it kind of like it's true, but we know that's not really true. That's not really how our country is run. Now, I, uh, I went to my bookshelf, and I, I dug up a, a relic. I dug up a uh, museum artifact. could be on Antiques Roadshow. This is a hymnal. I stole this hymnal from my church that I grew up in. I felt like they owed it to me. They had a lot of them. You know, those pews are filled with these things. They got more in the back. They probably got rid of them at some point. I went off to college, and I took one. And I just thought, I'd like to have one of these. I still have it on the bookshelf. Now, I remember these songs growing up. In church, If I open up to page 571, for those of you who don't know what a hymn book is, uh, these were around in the days of other ancient relics like VCRs, cassette tapes, and answering machines. What up, John? <laughs> Welcome. All right, so this is where all of our, our songs used to be. So, yes, Victoria, I sang, um, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is shifting sand. Someone would be up here doing like this. <laughs> Page 571 in my hymn book. My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Page 572 of my hymn book. Oh, let me read a little more of that. I, I have, these, uh, I have, I have that, those verses marked. Um, my hymn book, Worship Service. My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrims' pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. Tune into this verse here. Our Father's God, to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God our King. 572, America the beautiful, America the beautiful. Just think about that. Should we sing in church a song called America the Beautiful? I wonder what Lucero thinks of that. (laughs) Maybe we could sing God is beautiful or Jesus is beautiful, America the Beautiful. It's an interesting choice for a worship song. One more, 576, The Star-Spangled Banner. Many are familiar with the first verse of The Star-Spangled Banner. The second verse says, blessed with victory and peace, may the heavens, rescued land, praise the power, capital P, the name of for God, praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Whew, check this one out. Then conquer we must when our cause is just. And this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. Then conquer we must, when our cause it is just. In God is our trust. Um, is the United States a Christian nation? I think we could get in some fights about that. I think we could. Maybe that's not the best question to ask. I, th- I think a question we all could wrestle with, though. And this has to do with exile. This has to do with Israel. This has to do with Daniel. This has to do with how to read the Bible. There's huge implications to how we read the Bible, which is what our whole series is about. A better question is, is the United States a Christ-like nation? A Christ-like nation. Now, I want to give you a quick history of our country. And again, this this all plays into dramatic effects of how we view the world. In fact, Victoria's anti-racism devotional this morning, reminded me very much of this sermon and of the text that we're going to look at. So is our country, a Christ-like nation, we, we look back at the founding fathers and we say, oh, they were Christians. Well, they weren't all Christians uh, by any means. You can, you can find atheist founding fathers and uh, just um, Benjamin Franklin, I think, was the, the, had a Bible and he removed all the... Thomas Jefferson, sorry. Thomas Jefferson Bible, you can Google that. He removed all the miracles of Jesus all the miracles from the Bible, and uh, that was his Bible. Um, but our founders—that the, the words of that hymn that I just read—that's in a hymn book about conquering when it's just and conquering in the name of God. That's what our founders did. We stole this land from Native Americans. We made treaties with them. We just celebrated Thanksgiving. We we eat turkey and pumpkin pie as if that's what the founding fathers did with. Native Americans um, we made treaties and then we broke them and we murdered the Native Americans, we being the founding fathers of our country and we there we we committed genocide against them we we annihilated whole people groups and the others we displaced in the fifteenth century, honestly Google this this is important to our faith and in where we came from. The fifteenth century, the Pope had what's called a a, a papal bull and it means... Uh, the directive to the church. It's from the Pope. It's the authority. This was before the Reformation. There was really only one church. And it was called the Doctrine of Discovery. The Doctrine of Discovery was that God gave Christians, Christians, the right to conquer the world. And so the colonialism that happened after that, Christopher Columbus included, and, and, and colonists from Europe going all over Africa, South America, Mexico, and just destroyed civilizations absolutely and I mean destroying I mean I mean absolutely destroying it was from the Pope who said God has commissioned Christians to conquer the world that doctrine of discovery in the middle of the 1800s in the United States which we already were, were, were living out that was that was what gave Columbus the authority to go into um, the, the U.S. the way he did and, and do what he and the other colonists did to the Native Americans. Same time from Spain. But it turned into Manifest Destiny in the 1800s. And Manifest Destiny is the belief from our government that God, our God, in God we trust, gave Christians the, the mandate to spread across North America, spreading capitalism and democracy, and we, I grew up playing Oregon Trail. Anyone else? Oregon Trail? Thank you, Brian. Yeah, John. Oregon Trail, we're like, oh, yeah, that land, it was so uninhabited. That land was just filled with gold and the Wild West. No, that land was very much inhabited. We started a war with Mexico to steal the Western United States from Mexicans. And, and then we drove them out of the land and said, you're not allowed here, it's ours. we enslaved Africans for centuries to build our economy and our wealth. Okay, that's our history. They don't teach that in schools. Most of the time. They should. Uh, but, we, uh, but we need to learn it in church. Because, guys, that was all Christians doing that stuff. Not just Christians like, oh, I feel like doing that. Belief that God mandated them to do it. Why? Because they were reading their Bibles wrong. They're reading their Bibles wrong, and people today are still reading their Bibles wrong, let alone current policies. Whether you're on the left or whether you're on the right, I hope you can look at your politicians and go, they ain't (laughs) Christ-like. They're not Christ-like in their policies, and they're certainly not Christ-like in their morals and their moral behavior. Our country is nothing like what ancient Israel was supposed to be like. The leaders of ancient Israel, the king, they were mandated to study the Bible. They were mandated to be like a pastor, basically, to be, to, to, to be of, of, uh, of that type of knowledge of God and, and living out of their faith. All right, so Exodus 19, this was back on our timeline way back here early. We already did this one. This was the marriage between God and his people. Ten Commandments, Moses, and we are going to get to our discussion questions they are going to be more like halftime. This today rather than an intro. All right, Exodus 19. God speaking to the people as he makes this covenant with them. He says, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and, key on this phrase, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, We look to this concept as modern day Americans or as Americans from centuries past, and it's where we get the idea of the doctrine of discovery. It's where we get the idea of manifest destiny, that we are somehow a holy nation, which makes us superior to other nations, and whatever we do is good in God's eyes. Let me just be real clear. This verse is not about us. This verse is not about the United States. This verse is not about any country around the world. This verse was about ancient Israel. Abraham's family, the the Hebrews enslaved for 400 years, they were the only nation that ever could say, we are a Christian nation, though Christ hadn't come yet. So they would have said, we are a Yahweh nation. (laughs) Yahweh is God's name in the Old Testament. Literally, this nation is founded on God being their leader, their ruler, and them saying, we're going to follow the Bible, okay? I'm going somewhere with this. Trust me. Hang in there. This is way back on the timeline here at the beginning. Now, here's a picture of Israel. Um, They were the holy nation as a light to the rest of the nations, distinct. And when you read the Old Testament, you see all these weird laws And they had to do with being distinct, being different. What does it look like to look different in a dark world? And for them, it was on a national level. So there was laws about circumcision and not wearing mixed fibers and food laws and facial hair laws and cleanliness laws. It was to set them apart as a holy nation from other nations. So now we're going to fast forward to the New Testament. This is where we see Jesus. This is where we see the church. This is the covenant we are under, the new covenant. And here's what we find. First Peter begins his book by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, those are Christians, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now Christians are scattered everywhere. He's saying, you're everywhere. There's no more nation anymore. And he was speaking to Jews and Gentiles, people that never descended from the bloodline of Abraham, people that weren't Israelites, people that weren't Jewish. Chapter later in the book, this might sound familiar to you. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. This should sound familiar. We just read it. Moses gives the Ten Commandments. Now, Peter's saying to the church, scattered over all these nations, people that aren't even Israelites, you're a holy nation. The holy nation is not a nation anymore. The nation is now spiritual. In fact, Israel wasn't even a nation at this time. They were captive to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the nation. And the question begins in the New Testament, how do you live as a Christian exile, in a pagan empire. That's what the New Testament Christians had to figure out. We live in a pagan empire, the Roman empire. How do we live as Christian exiles? To be a light to the world. This was their question. What does it look like to be a light for Christ in a dark, lost, godless place? And I think we can relate to this much more as Americans. Again, I'm, 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 I want to say I love our country. I'm thankful to be a citizen here. But that doesn't mean we have to pretend. Come on, look around. Our country is lost. Our country is godless. Our country is dark. And, and, and if, if we don't face this question, we miss our calling as Christians in this world that we live in. No matter what country we live in. But this was the New Testament church under the Roman Empire, for sure. And this is what we're looking at today in Daniel. This is what it meant to be an exile in Babylon. Okay, so let me show you this map, and then we're going to jump into our questions. Okay, over on the left is Israel. This is where the Old Testament took place. The Ten Commandments, Moses, uh, this this is the promised land. This is where Joshua entered. This is where David's throne was in Jerusalem. This is where they lived for centuries, the promised land. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he's a Babylonian king, 597 BC, he begins the exile, begins taking the Israelites from Israel over to Babylon. Babylon is near Baghdad, Iraq, modern day Iraq. This is a, a walking journey from Google Maps, I don't know if they used Google Maps back then, I don't know if Nebuchadnezzar pulled out his iPhone, and, but uh, I use Google Maps to, to map the walking journey through the mountains. And Google Maps says that that walking journey is uh, 709 miles. That's roughly the amount of time it would take to uh, walk from Grand Rapids to Atlanta, Georgia. Okay, so if you want to get a feel for how far away they were from home, start walking. And if if you don't sleep, you'll get to Atlanta in about 10 days. And if you do sleep, you'll get there in about two to three weeks. Okay, so this is the journey Daniel and his friends and any Israelite that didn't get killed is on to get over to Iraq. Now, here's your first discussion question. So, describe how you'd feel if you got taken to a foreign land as a captive where you don't know the language or culture. There's no internet. Okay, this was uh, 500 B.C., 600 B.C., and you have no knowledge of this place. Oh, by the way, they also killed Many of your friends and family. How would you feel? I want you to try to put yourself in those shoes. How would you feel? What emotions would you be feeling? I want to get a feel for what Daniel would have been feeling. And number two, why is it so natural for us to copy the actions of those around us, even if it's wrong? Okay? So, and then after that, we're going to dive into Daniel. We're going to look at what it means to be exiles in a place that isn't following Christ. All right, you have, uh, I think, six minutes, and then we'll bring you back up this way. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of the book of Daniel. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Daniel is a really fun book to read. Daniel's 1 through 6. They just read, they're just a narrative. They're a story, and they're really, really great. So honestly, uh, read that this week. These are not Bible verses. This is just me giving you a little summary. Um, Daniel... It begins by telling you about the, the the exile, the beginning of the exile. Nebuchadnezzar conquers Judah. Judah is is what's left of Israel, and he carries off the temple articles and he puts them in the gods in his God's temple. So think about that: these sacred articles of Yahweh that books and or chapters and chapters and chapters of the Old Testament are about about how sacred they are and how important they are. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar takes them, puts them in with his God as a, as a showing of of his superiority that our God won. And, and, and it's just, uh, would be a, a real, that would be, that would be one of the most painful things to watch for an Israelite. Okay, uh, what, what he does, though, is he takes the, kind of the cream of the crop of Israel with him. The first exiles were the cream of the crop. The leaders, Daniel was one of them. Says he took the, the young men that were leaders in, and, and he made them his officials. And this was somewhat normal in the ancient world. When you conquered a people, you would try to take the best of their best and utilize them for your purposes. So, Daniel now, in a way, he's in the court of the, of the king, but as a captive. As a captive. The king's given him food. The king's food would be the best food around. And Daniel says, no. Verse 8. He's not going to defile himself with the king's food. Uh, for, for several reasons. They're not really crucial to, our, to the story. Uh, but the, 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 what is crucial is Daniel wanted to remain distinct. He wanted to remain distinct, okay? So to deny the king's food, you could have been killed for that. Now, the reason is it's not just because he was vegan or ate gluten-free or something like that. In the Old Testament, it was very clear you were not to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, which this absolutely would have been. There would have been meat from unclean animals, animals Jews were not allowed to eat, and it would not have been pre- prepared in a clean way. So this would have this would have went against Daniel being uh, being distinct. Now... Um, we see that here, the set-apart value. When you're in exile in Babylon, it's important to stay set-apart. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But number two, uh, how do you act when you're surrounded by corruption? Right, don't we fear that for our kids? I fear that for my kids. Parents, you know, got some teens in here, I know you fear that for your kids. You're like, I'm sending them off to school. I'm sending them off to this world. And at school, they are surrounded by corruption, right? They're surrounded by kids who don't love Jesus. And even if you go to a Christian school, guess what? It's just as bad there, sometimes worse, because they're faking like they're Christian, but they're doing all the same corrupt things. And you go, my kid's going to end up doing the corrupt things. Why? Because everyone else is doing it. Daniel reminds us that in Babylon, around a wicked, sinful culture, you can still be faithful, But that's not my main point here. I want us to go one layer deeper and say that this is also true in the church. Picture this. Why did Israel lose their land? Why did they get kicked out of the Promised Land? They were wicked. They were really wicked. For a really long time, centuries, Israel was wicked. But guess what? Within that corruption and wickedness of a religious system, you have Daniel. And you have his friends that we we get to know. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you may know them as. These gentlemen, along with a handful of others, were what? They were faithful. They were faithful to God. They were faithful to Yahweh. They were faithful to scriptures in the midst of a very corrupt religious system. Okay? Israel was wicked, but Daniel wasn't. And there's a huge takeaway for us today. Because I have friends who are leaving their faith in Jesus... This is real, you guys. I didn't say all that stuff at the beginning to just try to be provocative or try to be novel. I have friends leaving their faith in Jesus because they see the corruption of the church. They see the way the church has sold out to things that aren't of Christ, things that are not Christ-like at a a top level, at a top level, right? Right? And, and, and so Christians are saying, especially young people, especially people that grew up in church, and they're going, I don't, I don't want to be called one of those. I don't want to be in a group that aligns themselves with things that are wicked. And it can feel that way. I need to leave my faith in Jesus because I need to leave Christianity because Christianity has aligned itself with things that are evil. Now, Where I find solace and where I rest my faith is I don't think it was that different for Jesus in the first century. The religious system of the day was wicked. And what did Jesus do? He just went and lived a different way. He lived a different way. You know who killed Jesus? Religious leaders. You know what the first Christians were called? The way. They were called the way. You can find that in the Bible. Why were they called the way? Because the way they lived was very different. They lived out the principles of Jesus and of his kingdom. I'm trying to wrestle here, even in this moment, how specific to be. I trust the Holy Spirit um, to help you understand the issues that I'm talking about in the church today. I'll just say this it deals with politics, some of it deals with politics, some of it deals with theology. And we've aligned ourselves with things that are evil for our own power that are very contradictory to Jesus. And I just want to say, let me say one more thing about church history. Up until the 300s, you would be killed for being a Christian in the Roman Empire. Okay, so again, Israel and the first Christians, they were a part of the Roman Empire, the Caesars, okay, not little Caesars, big Caesars. Okay, big, nasty Caesars. Caesar Nero, you guys, sound guys like that. I like that. That's some good laughs back there. Caesar Domitian and Caesar Nero were psychopaths. And they loved killing Jews and Christians. Very much historical. Up until the, the 300s AD, it was illegal to be a Christian. A guy named Constantine came around. He was a Roman Empire and he converted to Christianity. And we would go like, Yay! Caesar became a Christian. And he made Christianity not only legal, but the official religion of the Roman Empire. The wicked, ungodly Roman Empire. Now the official religion is Christianity. So overnight, you go from being killed for being a Christian to poof, you're a Christian whether you want to be or not. What did that do to faith? Completely watered it down. Completely watered it down. Christianity became married to empire. And the radical teachings of Jesus (laughs) fell way by the wayside. How do you think we got to a point where we're having crusades and inquisitions and colonizing lands around the world? Because Christianity left Jesus and married itself to a wicked empire. You don't have to be a Constantine Christian today. You don't have to be an empire Christian today. You can be a Jesus Christian. You can be a Jesus Christian you need to be a Jesus Christian. We need to be Jesus Christians. Amen? Amen. We need to be Jesus Christians. Like Daniel, like Daniel was a Yahweh worshiper, the, the equivalent of a Jesus Christian before Jesus came to this earth, within a corrupt empire, within a corrupt empire. All right, we've got some ground to cover here. Number one, oh, I'm being organized today. My hymnal inspired me. I busted out that hymnal, and now I have three points for you. And I'm like, I'm only on my first one. They're not alliterated, though. I'm still working on that. I promise you, this will go quick. Number one, live set apart from the values of empire. That's the number one principle of being an exile in Babylon, of being a Christian exile in Babylon. Morally, spiritually, economically, socioeconomically, live, set apart from the values of empire. That's what Daniel did. That's what Jesus did. All right, Daniel's story continues. Verses 1 through 3, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He wants wise men to tell him the dream and to interpret it, or he'll kill them all. Nebuchadnezzar had issues, okay? Dude is crazy. And and it gives you an idea of the barbaric context. He said, tell me what my dream was, and if you can't, I'm going to kill all my wise men. Daniel was one of the wise men and his friends. So Daniel 2, 17, now this actually is scripture, not just a paraphrase or a, a, um, a summary. It says, then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are the Hebrew names of who you may know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He urged them. Check out what he does. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel does not say, I'm the man. I have mad dream interpretation skills. Hey, king, let me show you a trick. No, Daniel gets on his knees with his friends before God, and they plead for mercy. They say, we are exiles in Babylon. We are exiles in a foreign, corrupt, wicked land. There's a king over us who hates us and wants to kill us. We plead for mercy to the God of heaven. When's the last time you prayed like that? When's the last time you prayed like that? about how to be a light in the culture that we live in. That's how Daniel prayed. Number two, second way of being a Christian exile in Babylon is to rely desperately on God's strength, not your own skill. Rely desperately on God's strength, not your own skill. All right, Daniel 2, God gives him the dream. God gives him the interpretation. So Daniel gives a prayer of praise back to God. And in verse 21, he says, He, he's speaking of God, changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Now, depose, it means to remove from office suddenly and forcefully. God deposes kings. He removes them from office suddenly and forcefully. Daniel saw Israel deposed. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be the next one deposed. And you start to see this theme throughout Daniel of God versus earthly power kings. You have God the king versus earthly power kings. And Daniel knows, like Victoria said earlier in the service... That God is in control, and he is the king of kings, and he has authority over these kings. Check out how, how Daniel 2 ends. He gives the vision to the king, and then he says this. This is the last part of the vision, of the interpretation of the dream, I should say. In the time of those kings, he's speaking of, of uh, Babylon, Persia, Greek, Roman Empire, all these empires that are to come. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. What kingdom is he talking about? Jesus's kingdom. That's the kingdom that he's talking about. Jesus's kingdom. Jesus's kingdom. You know those signs? I don't care who's president. It could be Biden, Trump, it doesn't matter, Obama... Everybody, every, on Twitter, hashtag, not my president. Not my president, bumper sticker, not my president. It's kind of ironic, they actually are your president, whether you want them to be or not. If you're a part of this country, they're your president, right? If you're, if you're in the military, that's your commander-in-chief. Whether you agree with them or not, that's your president. But that's what Daniel's doing here. The difference is he's right? The difference is he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar is not my king. God is my king. God is my king. God is my king. And we see this in the New Testament. We see this given to us, the church. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my citizenship. This then is how you should pray, Jesus says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My king is God. My king is not Nebuchadnezzar. My king is not Caesar. My king is not of this world. All right. What's the difference between these two pieces of money up on the screen? If I were to uh, pull out this fat wad of cash from my pocket, pretty impressed, wouldn't you be? Kyle, look at all this money I have. Dude, look at this. <laughs> Gonna make it rain in here, that I. I don't want to tear it down clean, I have to clean that up. What gives Monopoly money its authority? The game of Monopoly. If you're playing Monopoly, you need to have this. If you're playing Monopoly and you pulled out money from, what other game has money? Life, the game of life. That, that, the game of life, money does not count in Monopoly. You might be able to pull out real money depending on who you're playing with, and buy them off. But even real money doesn't count in Monopoly. This is all that counts. Because Parker Brothers, or whoever made the game, said so. Okay? That's how games work. It has authority, because someone made it. And they gave it authority. Now, actual money isn't all that different. This is a $10 bill? What gives this authority? Our government. Our government gave this authority. They printed it off. They put their seal on it. They make sure very, very close that it's not counterfeit. Our government gives us authority. If you walk into Walgreens and you want to buy a bag of chips, you better have this with you. This is not going to cut it. Right? If you go up to the clerk and you say, Keep the change. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they are not gonna be impressed with you. It's embarrassing. You might even they might even call the police if you're if you're not careful. <laughs> to get it wrong is embarrassing. And to get it wrong, you're gonna go hungry. If you're like, don't worry about it, honey. I'm buying dinner tonight. No, you're not. No, you can buy little hotels and houses, the little, the little red and green ones. That's it. That's all you can buy with that. We have to understand that this is the reality about the authorities, the values, and the investments of this world. God is telling us to invest in his kingdom. God is telling us that his kingdom is what matters. And within our world, within the game of Monopoly, we pull out the rule book and the instructions, and we have the board, and we have the houses and the hotels and the little dog and the little car, and we're working so hard on the game, it's easy to get these two things confused. It's easy to forget who our actual king is and who actually has authority. I love this. This is my last scripture. This is... um, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson is now king, Belshazzar, and uh, he has a, a vision of writing on a wall. This is in Daniel 5, and he says to Daniel, if you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Pretty high praise. That's a lot of monopoly money. That is a lot of monopoly money that Belshazzar is offering to Daniel. Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. (laughs) Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Daniel is not allured by the king of Babylon's trinkets and baubles. He knows that this king is going to fall. He has seen many kings come and go. By this time, he's an old man. He knows that this kingdom is temporary and he knows the king of kings. He knows the king of kings. This passage cracks me up. This is like offering Bill Gates or Elon Musk a lifetime pass at the dollar store. Hey, hey, Bill, you can have you a lifetime, you'd lifetime pass at the Dollar Tree. You can buy anything you want. Bill's like, I'm good. Thank you. That's kind of you. Uh, I'm good. This is what we have in the kingdom of Jesus. Number three, and last, lean in to the deep rest that we serve the king of kings, and it's his authority, and it's his investments that matter. And I want to ask you, what are you investing in? What kingdom are you investing in? And, 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 and we are reminded that Jesus wins. We're reminded because in exile, guess what? Who's winning in exile? Not you. Daniel was losing. (laughs) Israel was losing. In exile, we're reminded that Jesus wins. Live set apart from the values of empire, relying desperately on God's strength, not your own skill, and leaning into the deep rest that we serve the king of kings. We're going to go into our time of communion now. And we're going to go into our time of worship and our prayer invitation. And for some in this room, maybe you aren't a citizen of this kingdom yet. And today is the day to become a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, the true kingdom. Or maybe you have a dual allegiance that never worked for God. (laughs) That never worked for God to serve two kingdoms, to serve two masters. And today is the day to come before him and say... God, I want you to be my king. I want you to be my only king. We're going to take uh, communion next, and I'll give you some some quick instructions on communion and how we take it here at at Mosaic. Uh, Lucero and I will be in the front, and we will have uh, some bread and a bowl of grape juice. The night before Jesus died, he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. He took a glass of wine, and he said, drink this cup. This is the new covenant of my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me, the new marriage that we have with Jesus. And so we invite you to remember Christ during communion. We'll invite you to come forward to participate, or you can go under the basketball hoop over there, and we have a self-enclosed, socially distanced uh, cup with a wafer, enclosed inside. After communion is over, uh, we'll enter back into a time of worship where we will also invite you to pray uh, with our prayer team. Let me pray for us, and then I'll invite you uh, to the table. Lord, we thank you that you are the King of Kings. We thank you that you are the Lord of Lords. We thank you that we don't have to be afraid, We ask you that you would show us what it means to be a light for you in a dark place. Show us what it means to be a light for you in an empire that has lost its way. That we would be Jesus Christians. Lord, and like Daniel, we would lean into you to say, what does it mean to be an outpost of your kingdom, of Mosaic Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lord, we need you. We thank you for this time we can come to the table, that we can remember you through your body, the bread, and through your blood shed for us to forgive us of our sins, the cup. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.